from the Heritage Foundation. I'm Tim Desher, and this is Heritage Explains. Do you remember where you were when you took the SAT or ACT? I do. It was a huge deal. For most, the future of, well, everything depended on the results. It's Saturday morning and we're in school. Depressing, isn't it? We're here to take this test called the SAT. Well, I'd rather be at the beach working on my TAN. You are about to take the most important test of your lives. This is the test that colleges look at when they decide who to admit. The next three hours might well determine your entire future. But I don't want to put any pressure on you, so just relax, have fun, do the best you can. Okay, okay, fine. Say by the Bell is a goofy, dated example. But the truths are the same today as they were back then. These tests mean a whole lot to a whole lot of youth in our nation. For those who don't know, the Scholastic Aptitude Test, better known as the SAT, is a standardized test created by the College Board, which is taken by kids in high school for admission into college. It used to be that those with the most answers correct would have the higher score and have the opportunity to go to a more prestigious university. But that's changing. Well, if your kids are taking the SAT test soon, you might want to listen. The Wall Street Journal reporting the college board is adding a new adversity score. The number will indicate the social and economic background of the person taking the test, including things like crime rates and property levels in the neighborhoods that they live. The score will be on a scale of 1 to 100. It'll be calculated using a variety of factors, including family income, the quality of the student's high school, crime and poverty rates of a student's school and neighborhood, and average adversity score is going to be 50. Now, the way you have to think about this is anything below 50 designates privilege. Anything above it designates hardship. The score is not going to be reported to students or their parents. Only college officials will see it, and it will not be part of the student's SAT score. And of course, this serves as another opportunity for all the pundits to weigh in. Here's Anarima Bagrava on MSNBC. So first of all, we know that there is a multi-billion dollar industry to try to get parents to be able to prepare their students to take the SAT. And income correlates with how well you do on the SAT. So does race. And so there's many ways in which the SAT, while one measure among many of, uh, that a college can take into account, has, has had a lot of problems in terms of how, it's, how it has privilege baked into it. And with the counterpoint, here's Mary Anastasia O'Grady. Putting it into the SAT score, I think, is a big mistake because it really fuzzes up what qualifications the student has. And in the end, you're not doing a student any favors by putting a student who's not prepared into a school that has higher standards. Those students don't cut it. And so I think it's this is also a um, an example of how our society will not fix public schools. So what do we make of all this? 
There's no question that there are vast differences in opportunity throughout the public school system in the U.S., especially when comparing inner-city schools to suburbs. But is an adversity score really the best way to compensate for this? Should children raised in a more privileged area be penalized? Or should this be a broader conversation about the state of public schools in the U.S.? Mary Claire Anselm is a policy analyst in education policy studies here at the Heritage Foundation, and she joins us again to explain. Mary Claire, thank you so much for coming back and uh, joining us again. Yeah, thanks for having me. So just want to start and give a kind of a base point here. As it was before this announcement, were you satisfied with the SAT and did it serve its purpose? So there's plenty of legitimate criticism of the SAT. Um, some have argued that it's not a great indicator uh, of, you know, later in life success, later in life intelligence, things like that. And those are legit conversations that we can have. But the SAT is one of the few institutions left in our society that isn't supposed to be about who you are, about all these other, you know, factors that come into your life. It's supposed to be sort of an equalizing factor of can you answer these questions, yes or no. And the conversation that I think we should be having is, are all of our students in our public education system equally prepared to sit down and take that baseline test that's supposed to be a barrier for higher education? Um, and that gets into a much broader uh, conversation about whether or not we're failing certain students in our public education system. But the solution to that is not to change this test, which is supposed to be a baseline. Can you meet these standards to enter college? Yeah. And that was my next question. You know, should should this test even be accounting for um, adverse situations? Because colleges already take that into consideration anyway, correct? Right. The, the, this adversity score will more or less render the SAT utterly useless. I mean, if we're if we're putting into these factors of, you know, well, you grew up in this neighborhood, you grew up in this neighborhood, your crime rate in your neighborhood was slightly higher than this other person, so you have a different adversity score. Uh, all of these factors uh, will, will play into your SAT score, and you won't have access to that number that you're assigned. And so no matter how hard you study, you're playing against this number that's assigned to you that other people are determining that you can't uh, you can't contest. So you have no idea if you have a good score or a bad score, and you can't uh, look at their, at their results. Uh, I think it's also important to point out that the the College Board hasn't released any research on this. They haven't released any, you know any of the the real specifics of what they'll be using. And so we have no idea if there's good research to even support that this is a good way to be going about this. So so we have no idea how the scoring will work. We have no idea how the scoring will work. I mean, they've said things like they will consider uh, your neighborhood. They've given us some. We know Wait, that. But what does that be. mean? I mean? What does exactly. your neighborhood mean? Uh, I, I don't I don't understand that. Well, that that's a really great point and. Here at the Heritage Foundation, we've long been arguing that that a student's zip code should not define their future, which is why we support school choice. We say that uh, even though you grew up in a poor neighborhood, you deserve the same educational opportunities as wealthy families You know, in the next neighborhood that, that's better off, um, which is why we, we support things like vouchers and education savings accounts. We think that, that all children should have access to that. And so the way we've been structuring our school system where if you live in a poor neighborhood, then, you know, you might go to a a school of lesser quality. That's not necessarily fair. And that's not giving everyone the same opportunities. So that's where we should be addressing uh, this, this, this conversation Uh, to simply say that where the the neighborhood where you grew up says all these factors about you and that should play into your college admission, uh, I think is, is un-American, frankly. And I think that that's not what we're about and I think we should be uh, focusing on all the other issues that go into this rather than changing the SAT. 
Now, when I hear things that are undefined, like how we're going to score things, what does neighborhood mean, mm-hmm. all that stuff, I just hear a massive uh, potential legal battle mm-hmm. or some sort of um, appeal you yeah. know, process. Do you know if there's an appeals process for this? If a student doesn't get in, can they can they file an appeal? How, how does this work? It doesn't seem as if there's any sort of framework in place right now for students to be able to contest it because students won't know if they should be contesting it because they won't have access to their score. To me, that that's one of the biggest issues with this. And, and you know, there's a million reasons why I think this is a horrible idea. But, but probably the most egregious is that you're simply assigning students a score based on how much you think you know about them. Um, which is incredibly presumptuous, and uh, and they can't contest it, so they 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 have no legal recourse. I mean, so they the college board has said that they're not going to include race in their in their fifteen factors, um, and so that right there is them dodging, I think, a pretty pretty huge lawsuit. Um, but you know, I'm not a legal expert, but I can imagine that there's going to be plenty of people who are coming out saying, you know, this is simply not right. We'll get back to our interview with Mary Claire, but first, listen to this. If you're tired of high taxes fewer healthcare choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at heritage.org. You said in your piece, which, of course, we will link to uh, in the show notes, uh, and you wrote this for Fox News, um, that uh, ranking students based on adversity is simply the next step down the slippery slope of identity politics. Why? Absolutely. So if we're if we're playing into this idea that uh, people of a certain group will behave a certain way and we can expect these characteristics about them, that presumption is so strong that it's we can whittle it down to a number I think that's incredibly harmful. I mean, I'm sure you and I know plenty of people who might not have a, a very high adversity score based on our assumptions for what they'll be considering here, um, but but you know who have a, overcome a lot of adversity that might not you know show up on a piece of paper, and, and those people deserve to not be penalized in the college admissions process just because they don't have you know a very a very obvious form of adversity that they've that they've had to overcome. And once again, this is this is trying to make higher education about all of the things that it shouldn't be about. Uh, we have this this rhetoric in this country that higher education is a right. It's something that every student should do. Uh, and I just fundamentally disagree with that. I think that higher education is something that uh, that, you know, helps you expand your mind. But at the end of the day, people are taking on you know huge amounts of debt to get a job at the other end. And the question here is, okay, what are your career goals? What are your life dreams? Will college help you get there? If the answer is yes, then okay, then we then we should be pushing students to to go pursue those those dreams. But if you if you want a career uh, that doesn't require a college degree, we should be celebrating students who want to go through that alternative path. And if you start making college about the, this right and uh, you know helping people who are who are disadvantaged get it, that it shouldn't be about that conversation. It should be about is college something that's worth your time for the dreams that you want to achieve? While adversity can be measured in many different ways, um, as you've alluded to here, um, you know, I've had adverse situations in life. You've had adverse situations mm-hmm. in life. Everybody that we know have giants standing in between them and their dreams. There's no question about it. You mentioned in the piece, uh, you, you use the term leveling the playing field. Mm-hmm. 
and we should level the playing field. How do we do that fairly? This obviously is not a good idea, but right. but how do we level the playing field? Right. So the, I mentioned at the beginning that there is some legitimate criticism of the SAT. And that, that criticism comes from there has long been a, a big gap between wealthy students and low-income students in terms of how they score on the SAT. Um, and so that, that, to me, is an indictment of our public school system. Um, we, we, we know, you know from, from, from data that students who have access to school choice programs perform much better in school in terms of graduation rates, in terms of perceived safety, um, which is a huge deal. I mean, students can't perform well in school if, they're, if they have concerns over their safety, if they're in you know, a drug-ridden or gang-ridden school environment. And so students should have the right to, to leave those schools and pursue a safe, high-quality learning environment where they are allowed to thrive. In those schools, you know, students do perform better on, on tests like this. They're better prepared to enter that environment. Let me let me just step in here because I want to take this opportunity here to maybe define or give an example of school choice. When we talk mm-hmm. about choice, you know, yeah. you, you've talked about it in the past, and and, and, and we're talking about it now, and we're not going to stop talking about it because we believe in it and it mm-hmm. does work. So I, I want to give you an opportunity to maybe give us give us a real life example of yeah. what that might look like. Sure, um, playing out. So here at the Heritage Foundation, we're very supportive of the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program, um, which is a wildly successful program here in D.C. Um, that, that simply gives students a coupon to go to a, to a high-performing school. And so, again, the, the way we structured our public schooling environment based on zip codes is just a bad way to do it. And, and it has been failing for decades. We shouldn't be assigning students schools based on where they live. Um, and so what the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program does is it gives students a scholarship uh, to pretend a high-performing private school here in the district. And um, research has found that uh, graduation rates have improved by 21 percentage points for students who participate uh, versus students who, who haven't gotten the voucher. Uh, and so that, that's huge. I mean, that's life-changing for families to be able to participate in a program like that. Um, but what I also find really interesting about, and I mentioned this before, about the research on the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program is that parents uh, reported much higher satisfaction rates in terms of safety for their child's school. And so, you know, we can we can talk about test scores all day. We can talk about graduation rates all day. But the, what really matters for parents when they're choosing a school for their children is, is my child safe? And can they really thrive and, and learn in this environment? And so um, the, the, the safety aspect of the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program um, has really been life-changing for kids. And so that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about students who, who are maybe bullied in school, you know, don't feel safe in their school environment, you know, have some learning disabilities where, uh, you know, the, the assigned school that they, they go to just simply can't uh, fulfill their needs for their student, whatever it may be. Um, p- allowing that student to choose the school that they can go to um, will dramatically affect their ability to learn. And that, that is how this relates back to the SAT conversation, because if we're letting students choose their schooling environment, uh, they, they can put themselves in a place where they are better equipped to take the SAT. Mary Claire, thank you so much for keeping track of this and uh, informing us today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Heritage Explains. We love doing this podcast, and we're so excited to continue producing a quality product for you. But now it's your turn. The only way Heritage Explains will grow is if you do your part in sharing us with your friends and family. If you like an episode, please post us on Facebook or tweet us out. It really does help. Also, we know that there are a lot of new listeners to the podcast. So first of all, thank you. Second, we love hearing from you. Please email Michelle and me at managingeditor at heritage.org. 
That's managing editor at heritage.org. Or you can just leave us a comment wherever you listen to the podcast. We'll be back next week with an all new explainer. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher with editing by Thalia Rampersad.